Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Raycon. Right now, Creepscast listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. The stories for this week are guaranteed to really scare you. Let's not waste any time, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a sleepwalker, and I've been killing people in my sleep. Written by The Crooked Boy There was a fine spray of red dried in a rusty mist over the pocket of my fancy pajamas. Like someone with a nosebleed had sneezed on me. Bigger splotches of red, like some awful Rorschach test pattern, had settled in on the cuffs and the legs of my nighties. And there was dirt. I was covered in great streaks of earth like someone took a muddy paintbrush to my white PJs. Where the heck had I sleepwalked to last night? A crime scene? I stood beneath the harsh bathroom lights staring in disbelief at myself in the mirror. Me, Joan Thompson, 22, brown hair, blue eyes. I always thought that was a weird combo. Girl next door is probably what some weird dude somewhere thought of me as. And here I was, looking like I had crawled out of my own shallow grave. My hair was a mess. A rat's nest of bedhead with errant leaves and sticks dangling here and there like ornaments. I look like a cavewoman. I'm a sleepwalker and I've awoken covered in dirt and red and sticks and leaves. Okay, okay. What the heck? I scraped off my pajamas, realizing I was the one bleeding. Thank God. There was a tear at my shoulder, both in fabric and skin which had coagulated into a clumpy red mess. It sang a little when I dabbed it off, but the relief of knowing that I hadn't sleepwalked off and butchered a neighborhood cat or something was worth the pain. I must have just cut myself on a branch when I had wandered out. I climbed into the shower, scrubbed myself clean, watched filth swirl down the drain and considered how I had always locked the doors communicating from my apartment to the outdoors, so this wouldn't happen. I had never gone outside before. Not that I had any roommates in my tiny one-bedroom dive to let me know if I did. For all I know, I could have been gallivanting around the state while my mind was imprisoned in dreams. I had first started sleepwalking when I was a kid. My parents had tried everything to keep me from roaming the house at night like an intruder. Drugs, more drugs, tying me down, like I was possessed by a demon. But none of it worked. I would tear free of my bindings like the Incredible Hulk and shuffle off into the kitchen or the bathroom or... Oh crap, I was late for work. I worked at one of those hipster coffee joints that sells overpriced java to people in suits and millennials. And my boss. Between his time spent checking out my butt and berating me... That was no one's idea of forgiving. So, I toweled off, ignored the pile of dirty pajamas by the toilets as I got ready to sling coffee. A morning rush. 
One latte after the next, after a black coffee, and then more lattes and maybe a croissant or muffin, just to keep things fresh. We, me and the other three employees were buzzing around into the place, died down around 11. After the morning craze, we normally just milled about until some stay-at-home mom with a Karen hairdo came in. With the world's most complicated order that, I believe wholeheartedly, God couldn't even make correctly. The wall-mounted TV was running the news. It did every day. Whoop-de-whoop, -whoop, I wasn't paying attention. I was too busy. Body found in the Russell Woods by a jogger early this morning. My head snapped around fast enough to give me whiplash. On the TV, a news anchor who looked like he was assembled in a mannequin factory stood at the edge of a tree line and above a chiron reading, Murder in Russell Woods, Jogger Finds Mutilated Remains. Red and blue lights flashed behind him. Cops wandered. Crime scene tape cordoned off a hiking trail. That was only five miles from my apartment. Freaky. Her voice in my ear made me jump. Sarah, my coworker, turned a good friend. I think once you graduate the teenage years, it's time to retire the term best friend. Stood beside me watching the TV. Mannequin news anchor droned and droned. I didn't hear any of it. My heart was beating like a fist against the walls of my ribcage. I could hear hot blood roaring through my ears loud enough to... I realized I had been asked a question. I looked at Sarah. What? I said, Joan, don't you live around there? If I hesitated or went she white or looked terrified, I don't think she noticed. Uh, yeah, kind of nearby. She nodded thoughtfully. Well, be careful, okay? There's a killer on the loose. She said the last part with a sly smile. What did she mean by that? Did she suspect something? Did she have some crazy idea that I was involved? But she said nothing else as she shoved off to go mess up some Karen's order. Nighttime. I got ready for bed. I was scared, okay? Yeah, I admit it. I know it was silly, but imagine waking up covered in blood and dirt. Yeah, nobody's idea of a good time. I had been watching the news. They said the unidentified victim, likely a vagrant, was bashed over the head with a rock. I had never killed anyone before in my life, except for that goldfish that I forgot to feed when I was six. And I certainly doubt that I had the gumption, sleeping or otherwise, to brain someone with a rock. Nonetheless, this morning had left a scar, and so I positioned my phone at the front door and hit record hoping to see what became of myself after I'd climbed into bed. It took me a while to fall asleep, my mind racing, and I was terrified of what my body might do once my mind had turned off. But finally, after a long while of thinking and staring at the ceiling, I set sail for dreamland. And then I woke up covered in dirt. I rushed into the living room and grabbed my phone, it was still filming as I'd plugged it in to make sure that it wouldn't die. I called up the recording of last night and I scrubbed through until I found. There. I saw myself. Shuffling slowly like a zombie in a black and white movie into my darkened living room. It was eerie seeing yourself like that. 
like I was a living marionette being walked along by some dark forest. I saw myself slowly pad over to the front door, throw the bolt, and walk outside, thoughtfully closing the door behind. Fast forward two hours, a slant of dawn sunlight cutting through the blinds and here I come, covered in dirt, a lot of it, like I had gone out rolling around in the mud. I watched the footage. I couldn't breathe. I was paralyzed, terrified by the thought of what I might have done. I quickly went to Google and pulled up the local news station's website, dreading what I would find. But there was nothing. No fresh bodies, no brutally butchered remains. Or maybe I had just hidden it better this time. No, no way, I didn't. This was insane. I had cut myself on a branch, yes. Yeah, that's where all the blood yesterday had come from. I couldn't kill anyone. I didn't kill anyone. It was just my hyperactive imagination racing like a roller coaster through insane ideas to make sense of what I had awoken to. I put the phone away and cried. I showered in boiling hot water, scraping my skin until it was raw and red and I looked like a cooked lobster standing in front of my bathroom mirror. I went to work. I went through the motions and my attention on the TV, glued to the news, just waiting for what I knew I would hear. But it never came. The anchor visited a lemonade stand and then the pound, doing puff piece after puff piece and there was nothing about a fresh body. They did a follow-up on yesterday's body. No suspects, no leads. I messed up orders. I got yelled at. I rushed over to Best Buy on my lunch break and bought a GoPro with a chest harness. I couldn't afford it. I was making pennies selling overpriced coffee, but I needed to see where I was going at night. And the night came and I geared up, strapping the camera to my chest like I was getting ready to go skydiving and wanted to relive it through the lens of my camera. Or my hijacked body was about to go murder someone and I wanted video proof of the crime. I pushed that thought away and sunk into bed. I stared up at the ceiling for days, years. Five minutes had passed. It took an eternity for sleep to come. And then I woke up. There was a little dirt. Some twigs caught on my hair. My feet were raw, scratched by brambles and thickets, but there was no blood. I plugged the GoPro into my computer and loaded up the footage. I watched. The footage started in bed. There was groaning, me muttering to myself as I fought for sleep. The camera tossed and turned with me. I fast forwarded. 3am. I was still, I was asleep. And then I rose from bed like a vampire in those old movies watered out into the living room. Then outside, it was dark. The moon was high and bright. I lived on the edge of the city in a fairly rural part of town with thick woods and quiet roads for company. I wandered the night like the living dead, shuffling up the side of the road like an escaped Alzheimer's patient. A car or two passed by, never slowing for me clearly not concerned for the adult girl on the side of the road. I kept going up the road. Suddenly, 
I turned towards the woods, wandered across a patchy field toward the tree line. Ten minutes later, and I was in the trees, wading up a thin, overgrown hiking trail. Branches lashed the camera, leaves screened my view. It was dark, deep pools of shadows drenched the forest. A little moonlight seeped through, illuminating my winding path forward. And then I abruptly stopped. I just stood there in the dark woods. I could hear the soft rise and fall of my breath. Suddenly, the camera jacked up, angling at my face. I had just picked it up. The look on my face is what scared me the most. It was my face and it wasn't. There was a cruel grin spread across my lips, and my eyes were bright and receptive. They were aware. Alive. Those were the eyes of someone who was lucid, who was wide awake and running on conscious thought. I smiled down at the lens of the camera, and then I hit the off button. The footage went dead. I sat behind the computer, staring at the blank screen. I felt my heart lurching and swaying in my chest, like a tiny prisoner fighting to get out. I closed the computer and got dressed for work. I was making a latte when I saw another body on the news. Another two bodies. A homeless woman and her dog. Next, cleanly sawed open with a shard of broken glass while they slept in their small tent in the woods. I was almost positive the hiking trail I had seen myself on led to the very spot where they had died. I stared up at the TV, rooted in place, when Sarah startled me. It's messed up, ain't it? I looked up at her. I was filled with that awful feeling of anxiety. It felt like a cold stone of guilt was resting in my gut. I fished for my voice, but it wouldn't come. Sarah's face darkened with concern. Dude, are you okay? I blinked and I smiled. Yeah, fine. I finished making the latte. She watched me, not buying that I was fine. I looked like crap. My makeup was sloppy and my hair was a mess. And two suitcases hung under my eyes. I continued on like I was hunky-dory. She found me smoking a cigarette on my break. I stood in the brick alley behind the coffee house and stared at a dead rat pitched over a trash bag. Maggots twisted out of its furry body. What's going on with you? Sarah asked me. I didn't realize she had joined me. She indicated these cigarettes and I offered her one for my pack. She was a moocher, but I didn't mind. I, um... The words came out of my mouth before I realized I had said them. I need a favor. This is gonna sound strange, I, um... Can you stay over at my place tonight? I need... I know I sound insane, but I need someone to watch me sleep. She went beat red. Is this a, a kink thing? Because I'm down, but I would rather know beforehand. What? Uh, no, Jesus, no way. I'm a... I wasn't sure how to tell her. I sleepwalk and I think I've been going outside. Outside? I tried recording myself, but I need someone to be there to follow me. Not to wake me up, but to see where I go. 
It's God. I know it's crazy, but... Of course I'll do it. She said without hesitation. Should I come at eight? She came at eight. We watched a movie. We had cocktails. Maybe not the best idea, but oh well. And at half past ten, I left her in the living room and I went to bed. It was one of those nights where sleep refuses to come. You toss and turn and shift your pillows and drink water and get up to pee and rinse and repeat until you would do anything just to fall asleep. After a while though, I felt myself dozing. That was, in its own, long, meandering path down into darkness. And finally, after a dozen millennia, I passed out. When I woke up, the first thing I noticed was the color red. So violently red it hurt my eyes. It was everywhere. It was almost beautiful. The red room, it dripped on the walls in great streaks. It pooled on the floor in a dark black puddle. It drenched me head to toe like Carrie. It was splashed over every surface in my bedroom. So much. I couldn't scream. Even when I saw Sarah at my feet. She was ruined. That's the only way I can describe it. Red still ran from her in little trickles and her skin. The parts that weren't destroyed were pale, so pale. I was struck by how white she was, like paper, like the life had been sucked right out of her. Her face was gone, most of her head too. I suspected a good deal of it was drenched over the cast iron pan I awoke to find myself holding. There were clumps of hair dangling from the pan, and little twists of which I knew were once her thoughts and feelings and dreams about her life. The pan fell from my hand and hit the floor with a wet squelch. It had landed in a syrupy pool of her life. I couldn't breathe. I still can't breathe, even as I write this. Her blood drying over me in a sticky blanket as I sit behind the computer and write this confession. If it even is a confession, well of course it is. I have to assume, extrapolate, that I killed the other people those nights in the woods. I don't know why this happened. Don't know what compelled my sleepy mind to do this. I wish I had answers. I wish I could remember. The last thing I can remember is closing my eyes and then waking up to the color red. This week's sponsor for Creepscast has helped me a lot recently with returning to normalcy as I've spent more time out and about. And that's Raycon earbuds. Being able to return to the gym has been a huge stress reliever for me. And nowadays, I never go to the gym without my Raycons. These earbuds are legit. They come with a bunch of gel tips for your comfort. And unlike earbuds that I've tried in the past, they don't stick out of your ears. It's a comfortable fit with an awesome sound quality and listening experience. Perfect for pumping yourself up at the gym and zenning yourself out with some relaxing music or creepypastas afterwards. I've had a lot of experience with different earbuds over the years, but Raycons are for sure the best way to listen. They have a 32-hour battery life, so you can listen to what you want, when you want, and for a really long time. I never have to worry about them giving out on me halfway through my routine. And on top of all their great features, 
Raycon started half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee, so you really can't lose. Give them a try and you'll see what I mean. Create your own soundtrack with Raycon. Right now, Creepscast listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash mrcreeves. That's buyraycon.com slash mrcreeves to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash mrcreeves. There is a top secret experiment happening in Texas. The truth must be told. Written by Carlos Roca. Vacant. It's the word I would use to describe myself. Ever since that mind-boggling experiment, I haven't been myself. It's been three years since the experiment took place. I used the two million to move into a cabin in Alaska to get away from my past and attempt to forget about who I was and the experiences that led me here. I spent these last three years hunting and living off the land. You may be asking how there's a second part to this. Well, let's just say that God, the universe, whatever controls this stuff really wants to screw me over. I was on a hunting trip and when I was tracking, I slipped and fell down a small cliff. I ended up fracturing my ankle. Safe, safe, safe. You killed us. It's your fault. You killed us. You watched us all die. I didn't kill anyone, I yelled. I didn't know where I was, but I remember seeing a doctor. I panicked and I lunged at him. I then proceeded to attack him, and I kept screaming, You did this. You killed them. A couple of doctors tracked me, and I woke up in prison. So I was arrested for attempted murder. Two weeks went by till I was called out of my cell. Dr. Aaron Roca, there are men here that want to talk to you. As I walked to the booth, I recognized the man waiting to talk to me. It was the guy who drugged me into this. The man who led the first experiment. Hello, Aaron. Well, it seems like you got yourself into some trouble now. Well, look, I can help you out. Look, you sicko. I don't want anything to do with you and your sick experiments. Well, I guess you're just going to rot in prison until the end of your days then. He proceeded to get up and walk away. Instinctively, I yelled out, stop. I had no idea what was going through my head, but in a moment of desperation, I had made my decision. I presume that you've changed your mind. How exactly can you help me out? Well, you see, we've liked your work so much in your last experiment that we wanted to bail you out. Of course, only if you agree with our terms. And those are... We have a new research chemical that we want to test. S-180, a.k.a. The God Serum. Look, as long as no test patients are harmed and no children are involved, I'll comply. Look, I promise that no children will be involved this time. But I can't promise that no patients will be harmed. To compensate, we'll use death row inmates as the test patients. Does that sound good to you? Yeah. Okay then, well let's get you out of here. And the file explaining the goal of this project should be arriving to your house in about two weeks. 
Looking back at it, I wish I would have just rotted away in that jail cell. Like the director of this project said, no later than two weeks and the file was in my mailbox. Page one described what this substance was made out of. This serum is mostly psychoactive, but there was also going to be physical changes from what I've read. And that's where I come in as the geneticist. Page two describes the meaning of God serum. It was given that name because of its tendency to make ordinary people believe that there's some type of God, giving them a God complex. Page 3 describes the physical changes that possibly could take place like changes in skin tone. Once again, I found myself flying over Texas sky soon to arrive in San Antonio. Once I arrived in San Antonio, I was sent into an immediate panic attack. Instant thoughts started to flood my mind. I started to remember what I had witnessed. I collapsed. I then woke up in that godforsaken research facility. Welcome to the San Antonio Research Facility. It's nice to see you again, Aaron, the director said. I was on the verge of passing out again, but I found the smallest bit of composure to regain my stability. Hey, look, don't smile at me like you're some type of good guy. I know what you sociopaths like to do for your so-called research purposes. Oh, look, Aaron, I don't have time to play around with you. You're going to do your job and we can both leave here happy. Okay? Well, I think you understand. He walked me through the facility, leading me into the laboratory. Suddenly, through the corner of my eye, I saw the same doctor that had performed the last experiment with me. Let me guess, you got blackmailed into this too. Well, you know, I just haven't been the same ever since that last experiment. And let's just say that I've obtained a bit of a drinking problem that led to bigger issues. That's why I'm here. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but I need both of you to start getting ready to start the experiment, the director said. Alright, listen up. You all aren't rookies, so don't make rookie mistakes. Aaron, all you have to do as of right now is to take notes. Robert, you will monitor the brain activity of the patients. And last but not least, Jessica, you will inject the serum and will coordinate the pace of this experiment, the director said. What will happen to the test patient? Robert interrupted. Well, I was about to get there before you rudely interrupted me. The goal of this project is to test out S-180, aka the God Serum. This serum is predicted to induce mostly psychoactive changes, but physical changes will take place as well. Hey, look man, what is the goal of this project, other than injecting some BS into test patients? Robert asked again. Look kid, you don't get paid for answers, you get paid for your work. Now everyone get ready, we'll be starting shortly, the director said. Nerves started to rush through my veins. Jessica then calls the patients into the room to begin injecting the serum. Also, I forgot to mention who these test patients were. The first patient's name was Oliver. He was sentenced to death row for a capital murder. The second was Mac, sentenced to death row for hacking government databases. And finally, the third patient, Jane, sentenced to death because she was convicted of mass murder. 14, if I can remember correctly. So knowing this information about them made me feel a little bit better participating in this experiment that I knew wasn't going to end well. 
All right, everyone, set the timer. This experiment is now underway. Hour one. Nothing odd was observed other than a bunch of sociopaths giving each other death stares. Hour two. The test patients started to talk amongst themselves about why they had gotten sentenced. So, why are you here, cutie? Max said. Well, let's just say I got carried away quite a few times, Jane replied. If any of you say another word, I will happily make y'all my last victims, Oliver said. Whoa, whoa, hey man, I mean, we're all crazy, but I think we can be relatively normal for a bit. Well, at least until this experiment ends, Max said. Until the experiment ends, you really are clueless. What part of death row inmates and experiments go well together? Look, man, just don't make these last few hours of my life miserable. Please, just shut up. Hour 3. And this is when things started to take a turn. Guys, come check this out, Jessica said. Right before my eyes, I was seeing a neurogenesis take place at a rapid rate. All the way massive spike in neural activity was taking place. Nothing seemed even a bit off from the test patients. Hour 4. Suddenly, out of the blue, the most unexpected things happened. These what I thought to be mentally deranged people were actually apologizing for their faults. They started to look up to the ceiling. Maybe they saw something that we couldn't, but they were quite literally being judged either by themselves or something external. Hour 5. This is when I started to notice physical changes. All of the test patients' temperatures were normal up until this hour, but suddenly, all of their temperatures spiked to 110. Other than this, the test patients remained quiet throughout this hour. Hour 6. Hour 6 mostly consisted of Oliver crying uncontrollably until he ran out of tears. Why? Why? No, this is nothing like me. Hour 7. Jane started to behave in a very unusual way. First, it started off by her gagging and then she started to walk on all fours, consistently repeating, I'm an animal. I will always be an animal. I don't deserve to be a human. Hour 8. It was pretty much a continuation of Hour 7. You may be asking, what was Oliver doing this entire time? While Oliver stayed dead silent in the corner, staring deep into the wall, not even once turning away. Hour 9. Mac finally broke his silence. We deserve this by all means. We become the bottom of the pit. Let us feel the wrath of God. Mac then goes on to leap in an unnatural way straight to Jane, and then proceeded to attack her while saying, You are a sinner. You are no better than the pigs who bathe in crap. Hour 10. Mac had beat Jane senseless, leaving her dead within 30 minutes. Oliver, throughout this whole time, stayed weeping on the ground. Okay, I think that's enough for now, Mac said. Mac... Is it possible that even I can be cleansed? Oliver asked. Good question, but no. None of us will be forgiven for what we've done. But I won't let us go out without experiencing just a fraction of the pain that we've caused, Mac replied. Then why haven't you killed me? 
Do it. End my suffering. I can't take this anymore. Because you're going to kill me. How about you end my suffering? Max said. I'm scared, Mac. Is it possible that you can comfort me before the end as my last wish? I beg you. Max stayed quiet and then again he sat down in the corner, fixating his attention at the wall. Hour 11. And this is when the biggest physical change took place. Oliver and Max's skin started to turn light blue. You could see their veins and arteries. Why was this happening? I have no idea. But slowly, I started to understand. Oh, so, it's finally coming close to an end, the director said. What the heck is happening to his skin? Matter of fact, what is the research chemical made out of? I won't go into detail just yet, but answering your first question, the reason their skin is turning orange is by the small amounts of extraterrestrial DNA. I had so many questions, but of course, I had to wait until after the experiment for them to explain. Hour 12. Matt quickly gets up and runs at an inhuman level of speed towards the wall over and over again. Oliver quickly joins in. I'm assuming they had had enough of this experiment and decided that it was time to take themselves out. But of course, this egotistical director wasn't satisfied, so he quickly ordered guards to tranquilize the two men and strap them down in chairs. I can't take this anymore, please, Max said. Freaking do it, get rid of us. I will give you both a quick death if you explain in full detail the reasoning behind these actions, the director asked. Around us exist dimensions, and well, the entity who runs it all. I've seen him and he's spoken to me, Oliver said. Oliver, don't you say another word, Max spoke. Or what? I want to die already, don't you? Of course I do, but still, you know what waits for us on the other side, right? And the director pulls out his handgun and completely unloads the clip into Max's head. Okay, now that we've got that situated, continue please, the director said. Uh, yeah, well, back to what I was saying. Around us exist dimensions that we cannot see with the naked eye. But once you injected us with whatever that was, we entered this realm. Explain to us what this realm is like. Well, it was quite colorful, strange, and outright unearthly. For example, there were shapes and colors that I've never seen before. Entities roaming around in the abyss. And don't get me started on these strange vibrational sounds that I heard. This sounds like a lot like DMT to me, I said. What exactly is DMT, Aaron? The director said. Well, DMT is a naturally occurring chemical in our bodies that is theorized to help us dream at night. And while you can find a pure substance of it and smoke it and experience a trip-like state. I know this from experience, just like on the last experiment. I knew what LSD was like. And now I can clearly see what that the guys have decided to modify DMT as well. You catch on quick, Aaron. I'm impressed, but right now isn't the time for that. Explain in broader detail. What else do you want to know? One minute I was here in this room and the next, I was launched into a different dimension. Is this really my existence? Is this really how it's all going to end? Oliver started to enter a psychosis-like state. 
I couldn't say that I didn't feel bad for him, but at the end of the day, he was still the murderer. We all wear a mask. We are all truly insane. We are all insane. You, me, and everyone here. No one in this world truly knows each other. We all hold up a mask and hide our true nature. We are truly lost and alone. Well, is this your true nature? The director asked. I remember now who I was before my mask was put on. Can you answer my question? No, I remember who I truly was before all of this chaos. I'm going to need you to give me a better idea about what you're talking about. Whatever your name is, do you remember who you were before the mask? Well, maybe if you gave a better explanation of what you were talking about, I would give a proper response. Ego is the word. Well, hear me out before the mask. Well, I mean before the ego. When we were children, we were so innocent. There was no fear of death, no fear of status, no fear of anything. The present moment was all we had. The sky was still a bright blue. Look, don't get all philosophical on me. I know what it was like to be a kid, but give me more information about these so-called masks. We slowly became more and more conscious about the horrors of this world. And slowly, our innocence started to fade. Life was no longer life anymore, but merely a competition of status. Why do you think children are so precious to everyone? Because they have not yet acquired a mask. But we all know that they too will grow up to know the terrors of this world. I know I wasn't a murderer before, but ego, the mask, can lead you down dark valleys. To my old self... My true self, I truly apologize that I ended up here. Alright, uh, thank you for explaining. You have now earned the privilege of death. I was completely terrified. Not of anything visually, but of the words that he spoke. The truth, the light had seeped through my mask. I really started to question myself as well. Who was I before the mask? He's really got you thinking, huh? The director spoke. Yeah, I'm not going to lie his words. It did send a shiver down my spine. Well, Aaron, just finish examining their bodies and after head to my office so we can have a little chat. For some reason, their skin turned a very bright blue, but I was confused. If this was DMT, there shouldn't have been any physical changes. But other than the strange skin, there wasn't much of a difference between them now and before the experiment. So, you called me here to talk to you. Well, yes, I would like to thank you for helping us out. Even though these two past experiments don't relate to your work, having you here really does make things run smoother. Look, I'm not going to act like I'm here by choice, but I feel like I deserve an explanation. Why? Why use children in the last experiment and why keep on murdering for so-called research purposes? You see, you have become very arrogant and that's a good thing. The public has been brainwashed into believing that there is a structure that there are morals. Y'all have been focused on stupid beliefs and external factors that you have all forgotten that we are human too. We are curious too and we have goals. We have curiosities and most importantly, we have power. Why would you tell me all of this? Well, that's why I called you here. You have two choices. Either you stay here and keep on doing experiments until the end of your days, or I simply kill you. I'm sorry that it has to be like this, but you know too much. 
I will continue to support your research experiment, sir. I only complied to buy time. Right now, I sit in my room writing this to y'all. I messed up in the head and I'm in too deep. There's no way I'm going to keep doing experiments and I'm not going to let that guy kill me. So after this is posted, I will take my last breath on this hellish reality. Be safe and remember, nothing good lurks in the shadows. And if it's possible, try to find the light in this world. This is Aaron Roca signing off. Sometimes at night, I hear a whistling in the woods. Written by Dr. Horrible 26. I'm what most people refer to as a mountain man. You know, living off the land and working with my bare hands, that kind of stuff. I know, big shocker. The wild men have access to technology. Well, we're not cavemen. Just people who enjoy living in the wilderness. I was always one of those people. Until recently, anyways. I lived in a small log cabin, cozy enough for a 34-year-old man with a strange interest in carving and woodchopping. Now, I wasn't completely out in the wilderness. There was a small town about 7 miles away, but still secluded enough to feel the peace and tranquility of living in nature. Not to mention secluded enough to be completely alone. Anyways... One night, after finishing putting the chicken and roosters away, I sat on my porch enjoying the stars and moon. As I sat, I lit my pipe and I heard this strange sound, almost like a mix of a bird cooing and a chirping grasshopper. Seeing as how I was the only home for miles, I chalked it up to animals. I mean, what else could it be right? As strange as the sound was, it was also kind of soothing. After listening for a moment, the whistling stopped quite abruptly. It was strange. The moment the whistling ended, so did the rest of the world's sounds. I couldn't hear the wind blowing, or the running stream out back. It was as if somebody had hit the mute button on my property. It was so quiet that I could have easily mistaken my breathing for a wailing beast. But just as I was about to question my sanity, suddenly, the sounds of nature returned. I put my pipe out and made my way back inside. After making myself a nice hearty meal, you would expect a wild man to eat. Lots of meat, along with a hefty nice glass of bourbon. I began cleaning my kitchen, and I was about to wrap the leftovers. The cuckoo clock above my stove began well, cooing. Now, that doesn't sound like anything crazy, but the thing is, that clock has been busted for years, and it's been nothing more than a wall decoration. And as I thought, the clock was still broken. In fact, it wasn't even cooing. It was that whistle I had heard moments before my dinner. And once again, as it ended, 
For a few moments, so did my hearing. I chalked it up to a long day of labor, so I decided that I would hit the hay. And that's when things got weird. As I awoke and prepared myself for another day of hard work, I noticed something. The dinner from last night, the one I never got to finish wrapping, was completely gone off the plate. I tried to reason with myself that maybe I had finished it, but yet the plate and saran wrap were both sitting out there on the counter. You see, I'm not normally a superstitious person, so I again reasoned with myself that I had finished it before having the chance to wrap it up. After all, that glass of bourbon was pretty large, so I brushed it off and I went on about my day. I went to let out my poultry for feeding when I saw, well, a pretty messed up sight. My chickens had been completely butchered. It wasn't the fact that my chickens were dead that made me unsettled. I mean, I've lost plenty of them to wild animals, looking for a quick snack to eat. But that's the thing. None of my chickens had any signs of being eaten of any kind. They were all mutilated. Some were impaled along the picket fence that was used to keep them in. And not neatly either. No, they were so torn up that the shiny white wood had been dyed with the red crimson blood of my poor birds. Two of them were completely hollowed out. No bones, no organs, and no muscle tissue. It was no more than an empty sack of chicken skin. Whatever did this wasn't looking for a meal. It was in it, for the thrill of the hunt. After that, I decided some precautions needed to be taken. So, I took a trip down to town. Luckily for me, a technical store was opened not too long ago. So, I decided to purchase some security cameras. Nay, hey, you're that wild forest dude who lives in the woods, right? The young clerk asked as he rang up my items. He had to be no more than 18. The classic, old enough to grow facial hair, but not enough to grow a full beard look. Grungy hippie clothes and he gave off a strong aroma of purple haze and pineapple express. It reminds me of when me and my brother would grow pot in our backyard in high school. And despite being a goofy high schooler, he was a good kid. Had a very love, not war vibe to him. I let out a laugh as I reached for my wallet. I didn't know I had that much of a reputation. He returned my laughter and quickly replied, Dude, you're a legend around school. Everyone out here is too formal, you feel me? You though, living off the land, doing things with your own two hands. It's freaking hardcore, bro. He exclaimed, almost as if he was fanboying over me. I looked at his shiny name tag which read uh, Spliffy. I chuckled at the nickname. I proceeded to complete my transaction when he asked me, What's with all the tech then? I paused for a moment, leading to him continuing his question. My man, you've been living the frontier life since I was in pre-K. Why the sudden change up? I've been hearing some noises in the woods. Not like anything I've heard before. 
and messed up some of my birds pretty bad. I said as I handed the boy my credit card. So, just some weird sounds then. He continued, running my card through the scanner. And after a brief pause, I decided to mention the strange anomaly of the world going mute. Well, it's not exactly a strange noise, just a whistle. But for some reason, every time the whistling stopped, I can't hear anything but my breath. When I said that, Spliffy got rather concerned. Dude, you're dealing with a woodstalker. I raised my eyebrow. A what? He got eager, no doubt, ready to tell me of what I could only assume was a cryptid, which of course he did. A woodstalker, or a tree skin prowler as it's known in Indian folklore. It's believed that they were said to be the great omen for forest and woodland areas. I looked at the boy before, beginning to ask my own questions. I tried to convince myself that I was simply indulging his tale. But deep down, a part of me believed it could be what I was dealing with. So then, what's with the whistling? He continued as he began bagging my items. Well, according to the Native Americans, whenever hunters or gatherers would go for an exposition and never return, it was followed by a long whistle, which was then followed by complete silence. The Indians tried connecting the dots and they came to the conclusion that the whistle would come either right before or after disposing a victim. Well, I'll keep a lookout for walking trees then, I laughed. As I placed my card back in my wallet and I grabbed my items. Yeah man, good luck. You're really gonna need it. He said, rather seriously. I left and entered my truck. The whole ride debating this woodstalker. Then my sanity for even entertaining the idea. I arrived home and got to work on setting up the cameras. Making sure to put an extra behind the house toward the woods. The rest of the day went completely fine, assuming I had scared off whatever creatures were around. So, I enjoyed a nice meal and a tall glass of ale. It wasn't until later that it all went wrong. I awoke to the sound of my dog, Curtis, barking violently, once again followed by the now disturbing whistles and its proceeding silence. I instantly ran to my camera monitors and witnessed the strangest thing. Curtis had been sitting at the edge of the tree line, just sitting there for like three hours. It wasn't until I saw a large rustle around the woods that he started barking and then running into the woods. I ran to my room, grabbing my rifle along with a box of shells and rushing to the door. Curtis was the only family that I had, and I'd be damned if I let some tree monster take him from me. I bursted open the back door, dang near busting it off its hinges, and made a break to the woods. After about ten minutes, the whistle returned, louder than ever before. And despite the following silence, I could still see the bushes tussling in front of me. I quickly raised my rifle, 
slowly relaying the safety, and out came Curtis. I took a quick sigh of relief, and I went to pet him. However, he just kept running back towards the house. Before I could turn around and follow him, I heard another wailing, but it wasn't any animal or monster. It was a human cry. I rushed to the sound as quickly as possible. Might be a monster out here, but I'm not letting anyone die on my property. The screaming got louder and louder, till I finally reached the source. It was... It was the kid from the electronics store. He had been completely torn up. His chest caved in. His legs were broken to hell. He looked like a graph, and his left forearm had been laying on the right side of his body. I rushed over to the kid, kneeling down to comfort him. Let's be honest, there was no way he was making it out of these woods alive. Jesus Christ, kid. What are you doing out here? You know what was out here, he wheezed, coughing up thick red blood. I wanted to help, he said between gargled coughs. He reached up with his one still-attached arm and grabbed my collar, pulling me closer to him. You need to run, he whimpered, just in time for me to hear before the haunting whistle came directly behind me. I turned around, quickly stumbling back as I came face to face with it. The thing looked like something straight out of a J.R.R. Tolkien novel. Broken twigs and branches twisted to make the form of the creature's body. It's cracked, jagged bark seeming to form some kind of scales or armor. Or something. The most disturbing part was its face. The same one I was looking down to as it was telling me to run. And no, this isn't some leather-faced gene situation. The thing didn't steal the kid's face. It was more like copying it. It had been carved into some sort of tribal mask and it was disturbingly accurate. You could see the pain and suffering on the boy's wooden face. I was stuck on my butt, paralyzed from fear, as this thing slowly limbered toward me, snapping wood echoing through the woods with each motion. As I slowly began to push myself away from the creature, I was reminded I wasn't completely screwed as I felt my palm brush against my rifle. I quickly scooped it up, aiming for the beast, and fired. It recoiled, letting out a hiss of pain. Seeing as it actually had an effect, I continued to fill it with buckshot, till there was a pile of empty shells at my feet. Not wanting to test fate, I bailed my butt back home and fortified it to the nines. The next morning, I had called the police about the boy's body. When I brought them to the location of the body, which was still there, but not the creature's, not even a branch was left behind. 
They had chalked it up to a rather gruesome bear attack. I wasn't going to argue with them on it. What would have happened if I told the truth anyways? Probably would have been put behind bars or in a padded wall. I've moved to the city since then. A decent apartment on a real high floor and far from any forest. That thing is still out there. And I have a feeling it's never left my trail to begin with. As I stepped on my flight, the flight attendant gave me a strange list of rules. Written by, not necessarily... Can I check your ticket, please? I handed the ticket that I had been twirling around in my hands for the past hour to the flight attendant. She nodded at it approvingly before producing a sheet of paper from the file that she was holding and placing it inside my folded ticket. Have a nice flight. She commented enthusiastically before handing my ticket back to me. I grabbed my ticket and stared at the folded sheet of paper inside my ticket curiously before finding my seat. Once I had settled down on my seat, I removed the folded sheet of paper from my ticket and placed the ticket in my bag. Upon unfolding the sheet of paper, I realized it was a handwritten note. The handwriting seemed rushed. I've transcribed the note from memory here. Rules for surviving this flight. 1. Do not speak of this sheet to any passenger. You are the only human on this flight. 2. Check the time on your phone after reading the sheet. All rules will apply based on the time of your phone. 3. During the first hour of your flight, do not talk to anyone. People may try to talk to you, but ignore them completely. 4. During the second hour of the flight, you may start talking again, but if anyone mentions the window, do not look outside the window under any circumstances. 5. If you hear a child crying in the cabin, immediately run to the bathroom. 6. If the screen of your entertainment console suddenly goes black, immediately look away and do not stare at it. 7. During the third hour of the flight, the captain will make an announcement. Follow the instructions. 8. During the fourth hour of the flight, do not sit in your seat. 9. If you make it past the fourth hour, you will need to spend the rest of the flight evading the chaser. You will know who the chaser is when you see them. 10. The captain will make an announcement of the plane landing. As soon as you hear this announcement, push your way to the exit door and open it. 11. You will find that the outside is simply a black void. Jump into it without hesitation. I reread the rules again while chuckling. And did they give one of these to every passenger or was I somehow randomly chosen for this prank? I checked the time on my phone just to humor the list. 7.13am. So, this would be the first hour of the flight. Suddenly a young man walked over to my seat and sat right beside me. I gave him a casual side glance and saw that he was carrying what looked like to be a laptop bag. Great, I thought. He'll work on whatever he's doing and leave me alone for the flight. The man didn't even bother to exchange a single word with me as he settled down in his seat and put on his seatbelt. 
He stared straight ahead and completely avoided me. I let him be and started to fiddle with my flight console. Some people just like to be left alone, I guess. Soon enough, the captain made an announcement of the plane starting and the steady hum of the plane engine started to vibrate the entire cabin. The plane started to accelerate until the G-force pushed me into my seat. Moments later, I felt the plane rising into the air. I am typically not scared of flights, but getting on a flight always makes me a bit nervous. This time, though, my stomach was in knots and beads of sweat were running down my forehead. My instincts told me that I was stepping into danger, grave danger. I dismissed my thoughts and that awful gut feeling, jogging it down to feeling a little creeped out by the note. The young man on my left suddenly tapped on my shoulder. I jolted up like I had just been electrocuted. Even through my jacket, his hand felt cold. Cold and heavy, like a dead person's hand. I turned around and faced the young man. His face seemed wrong. You know how those realistic human robots can creep people out because of how close to humans they are. Yet subconsciously, we can tell that they aren't human. This man was giving me that same unsettling feeling and his facial features were just artificial in a way that I couldn't place. Maybe it was his eyes. A little too big, the pupils abnormally dilated. Or maybe it was his nose, not exactly in the center of his face. Or perhaps it was his mouth, lips way too thin and long. And don't get me wrong, he didn't look obnoxiously fake. In fact... It was those very subtle blemishes in his facial features that made him look like something trying to look like a human. And then he spoke. His voice was normal. Upon hearing it, the man seemed to look normal too and I thought I was just freaking out for no reason. Hey, do you wear headphones? He asked. That was a weird question to ask. Do you want headphones? I was about to open my mouth to speak when he spoke again. How would you feel if I cut your hand off right now? What was disturbing wasn't the nature of the question itself, but the fact that he spoke in such a calm manner. It was as if he was asking me how my day was. Suddenly, my mind went to the list of rules that I had subconsciously been squeezing in my hand. The first rule said to not talk to anyone on the flight, no matter how much they try to talk to you. I decided to ignore the man. He seemed really weird anyways, and if I was being honest, the list of rules wasn't the reason that I chose to ignore him. He stopped pestering me and returned to work on his laptop. I looked over at his laptop slowly and gasped at what I saw on his screen. He had a photo of me on his screen. That's it, nothing else. Just a full screen photo of me. And before I could process that properly... I looked over at his keyboard and noticed that it wasn't a standard keyboard. In fact, it really wouldn't even count as a keyboard. It was made up of oddly shaped keys, all marked with strange letters that I doubt existed. The man continued to stare intently at the photo of me on his screen. It was then that I realized that the list of rules wasn't a joke. Suddenly, a flight attendant popped out of nowhere and asked me, Sir, is this man bothering you? Yes, he is. I replied before my voice caught up in my throat. 
In under a second, everyone in the cabin snapped their heads around until they were staring directly at me. Their faces, they all looked wrong. Inhuman. Slowly, their long, thin lips curled into wide smiles and red tears started to roll down their faces. What had moments before been a fairly typical flight had now turned into a nightmare. I sat there, cornered in my seat as the entire cabin of people at their faces turned to me, eyes locked with me. Red tears were rolling down their uncanny faces, and their lips were curled into impossibly wide smiles. The flight attendant that had tricked me into talking to her also did the same thing, now completely silent. I waited for them to jump me, to attack me, but they did absolutely nothing. Seconds dragged into minutes, yet the people just stared. They didn't make an effort to move. It looked like they were locked in place, just staring at me. As the initial shock wore off and my ravaged heartbeat started to slow down, I started to think about what to do. I had obviously broken the first rule, but apart from being a little unnerved, it hadn't caused much harm to me. The plane's PA system turned on again and the captain made an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are coming across some unexpected turbulence. Please remain in your seats to stay safe. His voice was monotone and void of emotion. Every single syllable made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Everyone in the cabin seemed to dismiss my presence at that moment and returned to their usual things. The cabin returned to normal and I nearly convinced myself that I just had a very realistic nightmare. It wasn't until I saw the young man's laptop next to me that I realized it wasn't over yet. His laptop was still the same with a keyboard from another world. And most importantly, he still had a picture of me on his screen. He continued to stare at it and tap the keys on his keyboard as if he was typing something. I reread the list of rules and noticed the seventh rule. During the third hour of the flight, the captain will make an announcement. Follow the instructions. The rule sheet stated that the captain would make an announcement during the third hour of the flight. Yet as I checked my phone, I realized I was still in the first hour of the flight. Either breaking the rule had changed the complete course of things, or the rule sheet simply didn't account for all scenarios. I desperately hoped that the latter was true because otherwise, the precious rule sheet that was supposed to get me out of here would now be worthless. A sudden jolt across the whole cabin interrupted my thoughts. The captain had a lie about the turbulence. In fleeting moments, the entire plane was shaking. There was nothing against looking through the window in the rolls. Apart from during the second hour or so, I pulled up the blind on the tiny circular plane window and gasped when I saw the outside. All I saw was a thick black void that seemed to undulate like rich black velvet. I saw the lights from the plane start to get warped and twisted as the beams traveled through the void. Don't get me wrong, the void wasn't just completely black. No, it was full of void, rays, twisting and warping. The best I can describe the void's movement is like an ocean of thick black waves. My mind went to every sci-fi movie and book that I had ever read, and entertained the thought that I was inside a wormhole, or perhaps a black hole. 
How the regular Boeing plan managed to not get crushed in this physics-bending space was an impossible question to answer. I slowly turned my head away from the window. It took a lot of willpower to look away as if something from those inky black depths had hypnotized me. Everyone in the cabin seemed completely oblivious to what was happening and continued to go on about their regular business. I checked the time on my phone and my heart skipped a beat. An entire hour had passed in just those few moments I spent looking out into the void. I quickly looked over at the rule sheet to see what I would have to do for the second hour of the flight. During the second hour of the flight, you may start talking again but if anyone mentions the window, do not look outside the window in any circumstances. While the rule did state that it was okay to talk, I really didn't want to talk to anyone in this cabin. I also reread the rule about going to the washroom when I heard a child crying, and also not looking at my in-flight entertainment console if the screen turns black. It all seemed pretty standard stuff, and I thought that I had seen the worst already. This gave me newfound motivation to follow all the rules to the dot and get out of here quickly. I started to head out to the washroom to relieve myself, knowing that I would be busy during the third and fourth hours of the flight. As I was walking to the washroom, a woman frantically caught up with me. She seemed absolutely frightened. Hey, um, are you... are you also stuck here? She asked while looking me up and down. Did you also get the set of rules? I said. Yeah, but I lost the sheet. Can I just read yours? She pleaded. I considered it for a moment and decided to give her my sheet because she seemed really desperate. It felt good to have someone else be in the same situation as me, because now I could rely on someone else to help me out. I gave her the sheet and she thanked me profusely. After giving it a quick read, much to my relief, she handed it back to me. I'm Sarah, by the way, she said. When I used to meet you, I'm Ethan, I replied. We need to get out of here and I think our best bet is following these rules. That's right, and I'm glad I'm not the only person here on this flight, she said. About the others, well, they don't seem human to me. She seemed to have calmed down a bit, a bit too quickly. It felt like she was putting up a facade, but I chalked it up to being on edge from the situation that we were in. So, um, I guess we got another half an hour until the third hour starts, she said. We suddenly started to hear the shrill cries of a child in the cabin. She immediately took my hand and rushed us both over to the washroom. There, we spent the next few minutes listening to those shrill cries get more and more inhuman as the minutes passed. And just before they finally died down, they were high-pitched shrieks that still ring on my ears to this day. My left ear started to literally bleed as the frequency of the sound ruptured my eardrum. Sarah seemed unfazed by the sound. I guess it affects different people differently. Soon enough, it was the third hour of the flight, and the captain made another announcement in his emotionless, monotone voice. Ladies and gentlemen, please proceed to the front of the plane. Absolutely no one in the cabin moved. I looked at Sarah, and she nodded at me, giving me the affirmative to go to the front. We both started to walk to the front of the plane, Basing through rows and rows of people comfortably lounging in their seats. No one seemed to have even heard the announcement. 
At the front of the plane, I saw the door to the pilot's cockpit was open. I walked inside with Sarah right behind me and I noticed two things. One, there was no pilot. And two, outside the plane, I could see a vast red land with fire and lava crisscrossing the dried earth like rivers and purple trees dotting the barren landscape. I stared into the outside, shocked at the otherworldly landscape. The place wasn't uninhabited though. Large concrete buildings were concentrated in several areas. Where we had arrived, I had no idea. Sarah started to laugh behind me. It was at that moment that all the pieces of the puzzle had clicked together in my head. I realized why Sarah felt so off. She knew what time it was on my phone, even though she had never checked it. There was no way she could have known which hour of the flight it was unless she had her own phone, which she never did. She wasn't affected by that shrill, high-pitched scream in the cabin. She was acting way too calm like she knew exactly what was happening. As I felt Sarah's nails digging at both my shoulders, I realized that the list of rules had failed me when I had broke the first one. I had changed the course of things and those rules no longer had a time frame. Sarah continued to dig her nails into my shoulders and pierce my skin through my jacket. She leaned in close and whispered, I am the chaser. I was stuck in a bit of a pickle. The chaser had tricked me and cornered me in the cockpit and the plane seemed to have traveled to another dimension. I probably would have had a panic attack and mental breakdown at that moment, but I had something more important to deal with. The nails of Sarah, or the chaser I guess, continued to dig into my shoulder, and they stabbed through my jacket and my skin. She seemed to possess inhuman strength in the way she easily punctured my jacket, and then my skin with just a blunt nail. But as I slowly turned my head around, I realized Sarah was truly just a facade. She had transformed into something else entirely. Her skin was gone completely white like a sheet of paper, and her fingers now ended in jagged, sharp, yellow fingernails. Her face had warped into a misfigured eyes, nose, and mouth that barely resembled the Sarah that I'd gotten to know. I quickly pushed back against her and kind of fell on her to push myself and her out of the cockpit. You don't truly know what you're capable of until you get that adrenaline surge and a survival situation. When your primal instincts take over, you don't think about anything that you do. And then, as soon as I was free from her grasp, I ran. I won't bore you with the details of the next 30 minutes of me running back and forth around the plane to avoid the chaser. At first, I thought the other passengers would react, maybe catch me or something, but they were all gone. The entire plane was empty, and it was only me and the chaser. I was starting to get tired and lose energy when the captain's voice broadcasted over the PA system once more. The plane is landing at our destination. Please, buckle your seatbelts. The chaser took one final look at me before disappearing to the back of the plane. It puzzled me how the captain was now back in the cockpit and landing the plane. Curiosity overtook me, and I thought that I had seen the worst already, so I decided to walk to the front of the plane and check the cockpit again. The door to the cockpit was open and I could see a single man with his back to me operating the controls. He seemed normal enough, but after what I had experienced on this plane, 
and I knew the last person I wanted to bother would be the captain. I swore that I saw him turn his head around and look at me as I turned around and walked back. The plane landed eventlessly and those emergency rubber slides also opened up to service exits in a place where there were no airports. Before I left the plane, I salvaged as much food and water as I could. Some of you may say that I should have stayed in the plane. While that would have been a good move, how long would I last there? Days, at the most weeks. It's best that I get myself used to this new dimension that I found myself in, rather than sit there and then look for food when I was starving. And of course, I still can't forget about the chaser, who I believe is still on the plane. The landscape was an endless red desert. The only thing that stood out in the landscape were the occasional purple trees and the towns of concrete buildings. The heat was unbearable. I looked up at the sky and saw three large suns in different positions, all radiating their heat and light onto this planet. The ground was incredibly dry and I doubt the place ever received any rain. In fact, there were several ravines that were filled with lava and molten rock. I knew that I couldn't even survive a day in this heat, and I had already completely soaked my clothes in sweat. I started to walk over to the closest concrete city that I could find. It only took me about 10 minutes to walk there, but those 10 minutes were absolute agony, as I struggled to keep on walking in the heat. The beams from the three suns burnt the skin on the back of my neck and ears as I walked for those 10 minutes. Just when I was about to pass out... I found the shade of a concrete building and I threw myself into it. The relief was instant, and while the temperature didn't suddenly drop, it was 100 times better than being out in the open. I finished an entire bottle of water in one sip and continued to lie down on the floor, nearly passing out from exhaustion and the heat. I didn't notice the suited man when he had walked in front of me. Welcome to hell, lost soul. He said that phrase like he had said it a million times and he was bored of it. He wore a black suit even in the sweltering heat and didn't seem to be a tiny bit uncomfortable. Hell, I asked, clearly confused at this man's statement. It may have been the heat getting to my head though because that would have not been confusing to me and would actually explain the previous events. Oh yes, son, this is hell. You're an unexpected visitor, though. Usually we keep track of who's coming in. He sat in a tone similar to one a teacher would use when their student asked a dumb question. Oh, don't worry, though. It's not a rare occurrence to have people that come and go. I'm not sure if you'll be able to leave, though, so I'll set you up with what you are going to have to do for eternity, he said, as if he was just doing his regular job. What do I have to do? I asked. Unable to fathom what the horrible task must be. No, it's simple. We'll take you under the ground where the beings that run your world will consume your fear, and eventually your soul is sustenance, he said in a cold tone. I immediately stood up and began to run, but no matter how far I ran, the man seemed to be right beside me. He wasn't running, no, he was just standing still, waiting for me to give up. I tried my best to keep going, but the sweltering heat didn't make it any better. I was far away from the concrete city now, but the man suddenly snapped his fingers, and I was back under the shade of the building. You can't escape, he smiled. 
and that's how I learned about the first rule of hell. There is no escape. But I got out, didn't I? How else would I be telling you this now? All I can say is that I'm extremely lucky. The man snapped his fingers once more and we were down in what looked to be a vast underground cellar. I saw people being attacked in each cell by unimaginable creatures. I got a headache looking at those creatures and could not look at them for a long time. The geometry of their bodies didn't make any sense. They had completely different parts. They weren't even composed of earthly colors. These were new colors that I had no words to describe. To this day, I will never get these screams in that cellar out of my head. As the man walked me through this horrible place, I only had one word in mind. Why? Your souls are very powerful. We feed on your fear and suffering. If we didn't do this, the earth and your reality would not exist. As a return for letting you live a life on the paradise and known as earth, you give us your souls. Don't worry though, this doesn't happen for eternity. Eventually, your souls are fully consumed in no more than empty husks. You will find plenty of wasted souls roaming around up above. The man explained. So there's no heaven, I pleaded. What about God? There is no heaven. God has long left your kind behind. He considers your kind a failure and lets us deal with you as we please. I stood there in the underground chamber as a suited man told me about the afterlife and how it works. You know what's worse than that though? Monday mornings. Okay, maybe not. I was quite literally dead, and now this man was going to chuck me in a cell for all of eternity. Except that didn't really happen. Don't worry, you really think we waste souls here first? No, at first we make them work. Make them keep the barrier between your reality and ours strong, the suited man said, immediately putting away the worst of my worries. And then, almost immediately, a weird being made entirely of light appeared next to us. The being did not have a definite shape and, looking at it, it was like looking at the sun. It seemed to stand there and communicate with the suited man before leaving. With the snap of his fingers, the suited man teleported us away from that chamber and we were now instead inside, what I could only guess were one of the concrete buildings. There's been a mistake, Ethan, the man said in sorrow. What happened, I asked, and then suddenly the world started to warp around me as if reality was still a body of water that was now rippling from an interruption. Colors started to swirl around like watercolor, and before I knew it, I found myself on the plane again with the sheet of rules clutched in my hand and the same young man next to me. I had been given a second chance and this time, things would be a little different. I immediately looked away from the young man and ignored his cries for attention. I ignored the flight attendant too and suddenly the whole cabin was yelling at me. Their shouts nearly caught my attention and made me turn around to tell them to just shut up, but I stayed put and stared at my lap. Suddenly, the young man brought his head on my lap and stared directly into my eyes with those uncanny features. I could feel my heart in my throat as he slowly said in my mother's voice, Ethan, he teased as his voice shifted from my mother's to my dad's and then to the voices of some of my friends, 
I trembled and tried to avoid the completely disturbing features of his face so close to me by closing his eyes which only made him angrier. It seems the creatures had no way to touch me until I acknowledged them so I thought I was safe. The other rules were a breeze to follow except for the chaser one. The chaser was still Sarah and she started to come towards me as soon as the hour had started. I continued to run but Sarah followed after me calling for me. I tried not to get myself into a dead end and continued looping around the seats until the hour had passed. My legs were tired and I was utterly defeated. Soon the captain made a landing announcement and this time I managed to jump into the void. The void accepted me as it started to wrap its tendrils around me. All I could see was a thick ridge of velvety black as I fell and fell for who knows how long. I started to hear the rhythmic beeping of some sort of machinery and tried to focus on it until I realized what it was. I woke up in a hospital bed, covered from head to toe in a cast. Apparently, I had been involved in a serious car crash. The doctor said that I was dead for a total of three minutes and I had miraculously survived. You might ask me why I didn't tell the doctors about my experience. Well, they would never believe me. After years of rehab, I gained the ability to be able to do most things in life and everything started to become normal again. That is, until the suited man visited me again. It was a cool Saturday evening and I was going for a walk in the park to try and push myself to improve my health. My athletic ability hadn't been the same since the accident. He walked over to me and I immediately froze as he held his hands up defensively in front of him to signify he meant no harm. I just want to explain some things, he offered sincerely. You were never supposed to go to hell, Ethan. It wasn't your time yet. When these souls' time comes, it is taken to hell in a sort of purgatory, you could say. It manifests differently depending on the person and your own unique purgatory was the plane. The flight attendant that gave you the list of rules realized the error and gave you the list to give you a chance to fight your way out of the purgatory and return to Earth. It was not in our power to return you ourselves, therefore you had to do it. I found you in hell unaccounted for, and I was ready to put your soul to work. When another higher being told me to send you back in the plane and give you a second chance so that you could return, he explained. Cool, but why do you find the need to tell me that? I asked. Because this time, your time has come for real. And I see it as a personal responsibility to finish off what we were on to last time. He said as his lips curled into a smile full of malice. I ran away from the man immediately, but I know that my death is near. All I can tell you guys is to enjoy your life while you still have it. What We Found Under the Great Sphinx of Giza Written by Red Hot Owl Between 1991 and 1993, American author John Anthony West and his team of archaeologists conducted a series of geological and seismic surveys around the Great Sphinx of Giza. The resulting seismogram indicated the existence of several unexplored tunnels and cavities in the bedrock beneath the monument. 
the most notable of which was a chamber located at an approximate depth of 25 feet beneath its front paws. Following the remarkable discovery, the team was abruptly and rather suspiciously expelled from the site by Egyptian authorities, which inspired a slew of increasingly outlandish conspiracy theories. Around that time was when we got involved. I will refrain from disclosing who we exactly are, or were, rather. Think of us as a group of independent contractors that specialized in the procurement, study and safekeeping of, let's call it, anomalous paraphernalia, the type of unconventional curiosities that require a special touch to handle. We arrived in Giza during the summer of 1994. The local government had tasked us with the excavation and transportation of whatever valuables lay buried beneath the 73 meters long statue. A rather tame job compared to our usual ventures. The officials that we spoke to claimed ignorance, emphasizing that they weren't actually certain whether there was anything down there in the first place, anomalous or otherwise. However, on the off chance that there were indeed relics of immense cultural significance stashed there, they didn't want to risk having them dug up by some nosy tourist instead. I don't like this, sir. We're being sent in blind. My assistant, who I've renamed to Brian for the purposes of this story, muttered under his breath as we both stood overlooking the monolith. In the distance past it, partially obscured by a shifting fog of dust, stood the iconic trio of pyramids, their perfectly symmetrical peaks reaching towards the orange-tinted sky above. Brian turned to face me, and the glare of the descending sun reflecting off his circular glasses. With his boyish perm and inquisitive blue eyes, he reminded me of a college freshman more than he did a professional that had nearly a decade of experience under his belt. I flashed him a dismissive smile and produced another cigarette from my breast pocket. You pee in your britches already. I teased over the incessant whirring of the excavation drill. I just got a bad feeling about this one is all. If the job is as straightforward as they say... Why hire us? We are clearly overqualified for this. I shrugged while expectantly clasping the unlit cigarette between my lips. Brian registered the hint and started rummaging through his own pockets, eventually fishing out a lighter and handing it over. We're through, exclaimed a voice in the background. We were met with the sight of our senior seismologist half-jogging towards us. His face was red and glistening with perspiration but there was a proud grin concealed beneath that unkempt mustache of his. We're through. He breathlessly repeated once he was closer to us. You're good to go. Did you get a look at what's down there? Brian inquired. There is a mixture of impatience and unease clearly audible in his tone. Our colleague wiped his forehead with a sleeve. He looked over his shoulder at the limestone colossus in whose shadow he was standing. The statue's inanimate eyes stared back in turn, partially eroded expression ever stoic and unflinching. I, I managed to snatch a peek. Chamber seems empty to me, kind of anticlimactic if I'm honest. Wait, what? What do you mean empty? Precisely what I just said, lad. Ain't anything down there as far as I can tell. No urns, no parchments, no gold. Just a ceiling and four walls with nothing but dust between them. You think somebody beat us to it? I chimed in, expelling a stream of smoke through my nostrils. 
Improbable, but not impossible, I suppose. That'll be for you two to confirm. I nodded, drew one final whiff from my cancer stick, and then snuffed it against Galdian sand with my heel. Right, let's get this done. There's the cold pint with my name on it back at HQ. Moments later, Brian and I were waddling towards the base of the Sphinx, donned in hazmat suits and armed pair with a industrial flashlights. You'd be surprised by how often the purpose for the cursed items we were sent to retrieve were just radioactive or comprised of hazardous materials. Quite regularly, in fact. I approached the gaping drill hole near the statue's right paw, lowered myself to a sitting position and started climbing down via rope ladder, followed closely by my incredulous protege. Darkness enveloped us both. As soon as my feet hit what felt like solid ground, I retreated back a few steps and I flicked on my torch. Guess he was right, I remarked, voice amplified by the transmitter affixed to my respirator. I was standing in the middle of a cavernous subterranean space that indeed held nothing at first glance, both of value and in general. Particles floated past the beams of artificial light that we wielded, kicked up by our movements throughout the hollow chamber. Sand trickled from cracks in the ceiling, its integrity undoubtedly comprised by the massive borehole from which we had descended. Though this place resembled no tomb, it could have been ours if we chose to linger for too long. Time-worn iconography decorated the walls featuring your usual cast of deities. There was the ram-headed form of Ra standing atop his solar bark, flanked by Sia and Hika as they sailed across the underworld. Nearby was a portrayal of Osiris sitting on his throne, his wife Isis dutifully at his side and wise Thoth acting as their scribe. Of course, there was the enigmatic Anubis, depicted tending to the deceased or passing judgment upon them. And then, there was another figure that I couldn't quite recognize and yet featured quite prominently. The deity was near identical to his jackal-headed counterpart, distinguished solely by his more militant garbs and the weapons he held, usually a bow or a curved blade. Further imagery consistently depicted the deity fighting some sort of beast as though engaged in an eternal rivalry with the creature. Some murals illustrated the four-legged monster consuming its adversary and ushering an age of strife. Others portrayed the warrior god as the victor, standing above his slain foe while soldiers, priests, and peasants alike rejoiced. Ah, uh, sir. I looked back at Brian, who in turn had his flashlight raised toward the farthermost wall of the chamber, illuminating it. Below, a gilded etching of the anonymous god with his kopesh raised above his canine head was the lid of a sarcophagus, standing upright and partially embedded within the sandstone itself its painted likeness observing us from across the room. I guess the place was a tomb after all, albeit an unusually spacious and empty one. The sand crunched beneath our boots as we advanced towards our find. I was the one leading the charge, of course, with Brian in tow. As I got closer, I began noticing more details about the anthropoid coffin, namely the contrast between the distinctly human face and the cat-like paws folded to its body. Egyptian coffins were rarely made to represent what their occupant actually looked like, so the occasional creative liberty wasn't anything out of the ordinary. And yet, 
I couldn't help but draw parallels between its design and the half-human, half-feline monument beneath which it was located. An unlikely coincidence, to be certain. And I placed my gloved hand over the vertical lid and leaned closer. There were no gaps to speak of. It was as if the wall had been molded around the sarcophagus, fitting it like a cast. It was an admittedly bothersome but hardly unconquerable obstacle, giving the heavy-duty equipment the lads on the surface had at their disposal. Sir, what are you doing? What does it look like? I murmured back. Aren't you being a bit too handsy? We don't know what's inside. Some dead bloke? Look, mate, if you're so worried, why don't you just... I almost bit through my own tongue as a sudden surge of pain assaulted my head. It felt as if someone had stabbed my brain with a bloody dagger, twisting and driving it deeper as the pain kept amplifying. It was horrible, maddening. I stumbled back, uselessly clawing at my visor. There was no escaping it. I would have gladly accepted death if it meant reprieve from this hell. My balance was quick to falter. I was reduced to squirming in the ground like a snail, doused with salt, desperate for relief. The last thing I saw was the outline of my assistant looming over me, and reaching for his handheld radio in a panic-stricken fit, before everything faded to black. I'm not sure how long I remained in that place. Days, years, centuries perhaps. The concept of linear time had lost all of its meaning. All there was was the infinite void. It was a barren, dark, and quiet place where absence reigned supreme. At first, I feared the emptiness. Let it drive me to the brink of insanity, but I eventually became a part of it. As you drift through the abyss without direction, without purpose, all you feel is apathy. You aren't content to be there per se, but leaving seems like such an impossibility that it isn't even worth considering. You are no one in a universe of nothing. You don't even exist. You are nothing. And nothing's only purpose is to be nothing until made into something. And then there was light. Multiple to be precise. I'd compare them to the stars in the night sky if they didn't seem so close. They were more like a constellation of moons. Their silver brilliance gleaming against the expanse of knee-deep water I was apparently now standing in. I looked down for the first time in what felt like millennia, confirming that I was indeed whole. Nude, but whole. Warm waves of unknown origin splashed against my thighs and caressed the tips of my fingers. It was soothing, like ointment for the inflamed wound that was my abused psyche. Unfortunately, my moment of tranquility was meant to be just that, a fleeting moment. It would appear that with age, it does not always come wisdom, huh? The disembodied voice brought with it echoes of that hellish pain. I winced and grabbed both sides of my throbbing head, trying to keep my skull from splitting apart. Thankfully, it subsided rather quickly compared to the last time. When I next opened my eyes, I saw there was an elderly man standing in front of me and looking back. Believe me, I know, he added with a toothless smile. Though the stranger's face was a crisscross of wrinkles and faded scars, age had certainly spared his posture. He was roughly as tall as I was, maybe even taller, and had the body of an athlete that was nowhere near past his prime. The man's broad physique was draped in a simple, silken tunic, 
which transitioned into a kilt that brushed against the surface of the shallow sea. The most unique element of his ensemble, however, was undoubtedly the wolf pelt that he wore as a scarf, with the dead animal skull mounted onto one of his shoulders like some sort of morbid ornament. Who, who are you? I finally asked. Every word spoken took a life of its own, reverberating throughout the ether. The old man had tucked a wispy strand of pale hair behind his ear and then sighed in disappointment. You invade my temple attempt to ransack it, and yet you do not even know who I am. His tone made me feel like a child getting scolded by their parent. I had the urge to apologize for my ignorance, but he never gave me the chance. It cannot be helped, I suppose. My brother was always the favorite. I am referred to as Wepwawet by your kind. You may not grovel should you like. I could have sworn that I saw something flicker behind the wolf's head's missing eyes at the exact moment he pronounced his name. If his annotation hadn't been so blatantly sarcastic, I would have dropped my knees and pleaded for my soul without an inkling of dignity. Instead, I looked back to the glowing orbs pinned against the black canvas above us. Where am I? was the next obvious question, which Wepoet answered with a question of his own. Where do you think you are? Am I dead? No, no. Eternal rest is reserved for the deserving. You, friend, have set in motion something that you must now correct. He unclasped his hands from behind his back and made a swirling motion with his finger. Now, I'm not sure whether I turned around on my own volition, or whether I was compelled to do so, but regardless, I wish that I hadn't. There, towering in the distance, was something truly titanic. Its existence was impossible. A creature the size of a city, maybe even a small country. The more that I tried wrapping my mind around it, the larger it appeared, refusing to relinquish the impact of its sheer magnitude. It wasn't content with simply occupying my field of view. No, it sought to ensure that my feeble mind could never fully grasp its ubiquity. There were bronze chains cutting into the behemoth's hide and metal rods, each dwarfing the tallest structure ever built by man, nailing its paws to the platform atop which it was raised. Forests of fur covered its enormous mast like the slopes of a mountain, but it was the head at the pinnacle of its bestial body that petrified me. I can't bring myself to describe it. I have tried believing, but whenever I dwell on that accursed visage for too long... My mind spirals. It's like a black hole, warping and consuming any independent thought that dares exist alongside it. If it's to be human, it is to be centered of one's own universe. Then that thing was more human than any of us ever will be. Beautiful, is she not? I wither and yet she remains unchanged since our very first battle. I lowered my eyes to my trembling hands, which I noticed were dripping with murky, sanguine fluid. The water that we trod wasn't water at all. How? How can something bleed so much and never die? You ask many questions, friend. The being that presented himself as an old man and now swayed beside me, calm as a morning breeze despite standing in a literal ocean of blood. I have always hated that about your kind. So many questions with nothing to offer in return. I pried my lips, but before I could utter the first syllable of what would have likely been another witless inquiry, 
One of the massive chains restraining the equally massive bees suddenly snapped. Both pieces of it fell to the ground with a distant rumble, followed by a tremor that nearly knocked me off my feet. And then, another shackle came off, and then another. As I watched that impossible creature with the face of a wrathful goddess begin to rise from its podium, eclipsing the lights littering the sky with its own cruel radiance, there was only one truth left to declare. It's going to devour us all. Indeed, confirmed Wepoet, while he leisurely circled around me. You, you have to kill that thing before it's too late. Oh, I have, more times than you can count. Yuchi always comes back, stronger and hungrier than ever before. While I grow weaker with each passing century, my father was knew that, so they converted my temple to a tomb and trapped her essence within it. That is, until you and your people came along. Images of the ornate sarcophagus Brian and I found flashed before my eyes. It was getting loaded onto one of our trucks. Perhaps there was still hope, for it had not yet been opened. I took a deep breath and held the stench of copper that polluted the stagnant air, and mustered the courage to face the stranger's true form for the first time. The burning eyes of the wolf god, Wepowet, pierced my wretched soul with flames of enlightenment. Tell me what I must do. The next thing I knew, I was lying in my tent, sprawled across a sleeping bag. Brian was pacing nervously nearby. He was overwhelmed with relief to see me conscious again, a side of his prudent personality I was rarely privy to. I had lured the poor boy into a heartfelt embrace when I drove my master's blade between his ribs. The blessed knife slid easily past the protective suit he had yet to remove as if it was no obstacle at all. It's okay, I got you. It'll all be over soon. I whispered in the ear of the closest thing to a son that I had ever had. His expression still haunts me to this day. My nightmares. Seeing the fear and betrayal in those blue eyes was the worst thing I had experienced thus far. I held back tears as I grabbed a fistful of his hair and craned his neck back. And then I ended his struggles with a subsequent slit across the throat, allowing his lifeless shell to slump into my lap. Having taken my first life, the rest came almost naturally. Dawn lined the desert horizon in faint reds and yellows. I couldn't help but marvel at it for a bit, before resuming to drag the body of my final colleague toward that bloody borehole. Sorry, mate, was all that I could think to say, as I took the truck keys from his pockets and pushed him down into the chamber with the rest. He landed on the pile with a muffled thud. Given the circumstances, it was the closest thing to a burial that I could offer them, before the local authorities came snooping. I'm not sure whether they're still down there or if the government had them pulled out before filling the pit. It didn't really matter, I suppose. All that mattered was getting myself and the sarcophagus far, far away from there. I wiped a bead of sweat from my brow and glanced up at the stony visage of the Sphinx one final time. I, of course, knew that what I was doing was ultimately futile. Sooner or later, she is going to break loose the chains that bind her and exact her revenge upon all of existence. There will be no gods left to stop her, no tumor coffin large enough to contain her. But then again, is it not just so painfully human to try and delay the inevitable?
Every night at 2.43 a.m., something says hello. Written by 02321. Because of everything that has been going on in the world, I found myself having problems living in my apartment. My job kept cutting hours. I had savings, but if I didn't want to get through it, I would have to start cutting costs. No more ordering food. No more snacks. Maybe beans and rice for a month. Aside from my incoming money woes, my roommates were the absolute worst. They had been forced at home and I liked the two people I lived with. But after they had launched around the apartment, I found that I only liked the idea of them. They had gotten lazy without a job. Or maybe they were never around enough to create much of a mess. My country dealt with the lockdown much different than a lot of other countries, at least that's what I heard. People who had full-time jobs that had their workplace closed received a percentage of their wage every month. And my roommates found that they could live with a lesser amount. I was deemed essential and I kept working much to my dismay. That was my frame of mind when I started to look for somewhere else to live. I officially wasn't on the lease so I could leave any time. I would give them the last month's rent and plenty of notice, before instead of just upping and leaving. After one roommate exploded, God knows what in the microwave, I started to doubt if they deserved any respect at all. Aside from my unaware tormentors, I had another reason for wanting to leave. A cat. The cutest cat I had ever seen in my entire life. But roommate number one was allergic, and roommate number two fed his childhood cat to nearly 30 pounds and an early death. I could not trust him to sneak any pet snacks behind my back. I started to look for something, fully doubting that I would not be able to find a place before my time ran out. The cat that I was looking at was at a shelter. I would be happy if he went to a good home besides mine but I've never wanted anything so badly before. Any spare time that I had, I was looking for apartment listings, but all were out of my price range. And on top of trying to adopt a new pet, it was a bad idea to drain my funds moving and getting a cat at the same time. If he got sick, I wouldn't be able to spend the money on him. Fretting as the days went by, I decided to expand my search to any kind of rental. I would live in somebody's basement if they let me ring a pet. And then I saw it. A condo for rent, far too cheap to be real. It had three bedrooms, two were pretty small but that was fine. Three floors, washer and dryer included. The basement was mostly finished, and nothing this nice should have been for rent this cheap. Of course, I checked to see if there were any murders or weird deaths in the area, but I found nothing. No rumors of it being built in a cemetery or something like that. I called up and grilled whoever I could, 
asking why the rent was so cheap. I finally reached the owner and he said that it was because he had priced it so low just to get someone in and renting. For some reason, no one was interested in the place, so he kept dropping down the price. For a year, the place had sat. People would come and do a tour but backed out saying that they had found other options. Just unlucky for him and, I guess, perfect for me. After my research, I decided that this was going to be my place. My move was a fast one. The condo felt a bit empty having so much room to myself. I would need to fill it up with furniture later. But first, I was going to adopt that cat. My cat. My cat was nothing special to be honest. Just a normal black and white tuxedo that looked like any other tuxedo cat that you could find. And he was older too. At least 10 years so. That's why he sat in the shelter for so long. His name was Max and I kept it. I know some people like to rename their adopted pets but that felt strange to me. He had been Max for 10 years and why should I try and change it now? I could not explain why I loved him so much, but I just did. He was a big cat too. Not fat, but just a big boy. And vocal. I found that out the moment that I saw him. He chattered and made noises that I had never heard from a cat before. Sometimes he would meow in a way it sounded like a full-grown man just saying the word meow. So... When I heard the noises at 2.43am a week after moving in and getting Max, I thought that it was him. I sat up in bed trying to hear better. On the first floor, I heard a hello. Max? I cut out thinking that it would make him meow again. And then the noises again. They were weird, but Max was a weird cat. And they were cute. I've never heard someone say hello out loud before, and that was exactly what it sounded like. After his few hellos, he ended it with a big, hi. He woke me up at least two nights a week with his weird hellos. I tried to record the noise to show to people, but every time I touched my phone, the noises would stop. It was like he was taunting me. I knew cats had a good sense of time, but I had no idea how he kept crying at 2.43 on the dot. Like I said, the noises were cute at first. I could snicker at him and then go back to sleep. Then I got a shift change, so I had to wake up at 5am for work. Suddenly, the cute hawos waking me up at 2.43. They weren't as cute anymore. I have issues sleeping. Once I'm awake, it takes me at least 30 minutes to go back to bed. And I was very bad at going to bed on time. When my shift changed, Max started to wake me up every night at the same time. Downstairs, clear as day, he cried out, saying the same thing that he had said before. I loved this cat, but I was getting cranky from lack of sleep. I made sure that he was fed before going to bed. 
when I went downstairs to check on him, he was sitting in his chair by the window, his food bowl full and his water dish full. He had a toy stuffed with catnip, and I didn't know if that was making him hyper in the middle of the night or not. Even after hearing the hello from him, I never actually saw him make that sound. It always stopped when I started to get out of bed. I didn't know why he was crying at night. It crushed my heart thinking that he was missing his old family, and he was looking for them. Max had an indent in his fur, where it was clear that he wore a collar most of his life. I have no idea what would cause someone to give up a cat that they had loved for 10 years. I just only hoped they were doing well, and Max was happy with me. He seemed happy. For a full week of losing out on sleep, I finally had a weekend off. I was ready to just crash the entire Saturday, and I went to bed early that Friday. But for me, early was around midnight. I was asleep for a few hours. And as you guessed it, I heard Max crying again. He was getting much better at sounding like a person. A lot of practice, I guess. Max, please. I begged, the lack of sleep getting to me. I opened my eyes and, in the dark... I had enough light from the streetlights outside to see a shape on my bed. I squinted, just as the little cat turned its head towards me. I was so happy that Max had finally trusted me enough to sleep on my bed, right next to me, but then it dawned on me. The hello noise came from downstairs, only a second ago. Max was a big cat. I would have felt him jump up on my bed if he just got there. My body turned to ice as I stared at my sweet Max in the dark. If he was right there, then who was making those noises? As if answering my unspoken question, something spoke right by my ear. Hello? The same voice that I had been hearing for the past week spoke so close to me, its breath moved my hair. I was looking right at Max so I knew it wasn't him. I did what anyone else would do in that situation. I jumped out of my bed, screaming like a banshee. I ran over, turning my light on. After seeing nothing in my room... I then did something any other normal person would. I grabbed my cat and went to my parents' place. My mother thought that I was overreacting. I had a bad dream and there was no need for me to drive to their place in the middle of the night with my cat in tow. My father, bless him, went back to my place to check it out. He wanted to make sure no weirdo broke into my place and was hiding under my bed or in the closet or something. He found nothing. No tampered locks. No places for someone to hide. No sign that anyone broke in. Only that he found out I was a bit of a slob 
when I wasn't getting enough sleep. Because I was saving money on rent, I bought a security camera. My dad asked my landlord about if it was alright installing it. He was surprisingly nice. He offered to come by and check the place, making sure the camera above my front door had all the blind spots. He made sure that no windows were faulty, and even offered to have my locks changed in case someone, somehow, had a key. I arrived home from work, just as he was finishing up with the locksmith. I thanked him for going out of his way and worrying about me. I had only told him that I had a scare, and though there was a chance someone had gotten into my apartment. I feel a little silly doing all this. I really could have dreamed the entire thing up. I admitted to him. I invited him in so we could pet Max and have a cup of coffee. Hey, dream or not, you never can be too safe. You're a single woman living alone. The neighborhood is a good one, but I want you to feel safe sleeping at night either way. If it's too bad, the last renters took their cameras with them. He commented, sitting on the floor, clearly in love with Max. Cameras? Did the last renters have issues too? I asked, feeling the hair on the back of my neck rise. Well, not really. The last person who lived here was an older, retired woman. Her husband was with her, but he passed away, unfortunately. He was at Bingo, I think. Anyway, she went downhill pretty fast after that. She kept calling the cops, saying that someone was trying to break in. If that was true, I would have told you. Her family set up cameras, but big surprise, they never saw anything. And because of her mental state, her family moved her into an assisted living home. The poor woman passed away soon after. Natural causes, heart attack. I sent the family some flowers. She was honestly so nice. Had a cat, I think. He sort of looked like this one, but more skinny. Honestly, all cats looked the same to me. Somehow what he said made me more stressed out. Of course, the woman was seeing things, hearing things. I'm sure the police came and found nothing. We had been over the entire place and found no crawl spaces for someone to hide in. My locks were changed and a camera was set up. I was going to be fine. But my landlord's last comment, it made me doubt that, and seriously made me consider finding a new place or moving back in with my parents. Uh, the poor woman. Alzheimer's is awful making her think. Someone was in her place sneaking up beside her at night. I mean, come on. What person breaking into a place would announce themselves with a big hello? I was told a campfire story that changed my life forever. Written by Mr. Na.
There is something you need to know about this camp, said the camp director, his face visible only by the flickering light of the fire. It was summer, 1997, in a clearing in the wilderness of southeast Ohio, a place called Camp Sycamore. We had arrived early that morning in an old school bus that smelled like burnt rubber. Passing beneath the arch sign that spanned the tall log walls of the campground, built like an old pioneer fortress. For the next two months, until early August, our days would be filled with hikes and educational activities, swims and canoe rides in the lake. Our nights filled with marshmallow rose, acoustic guitar, and campfire stories. On our first night, we sat on log stumps around the fire, while a group of counselors stood behind us in the dark like priests. The camp director, Mr. Daniels, dragged his own stump closer to the fire and leaned forward with his elbows on his knees. There is a story that we haven't told you, he said. A story that goes all the way back to the origin of this camp. Mr. Daniels turned and pointed off in the distance. You've no doubt noticed the great sycamore tree by the lake, yes? We nodded. The tree was the reason the camp was called Camp Sycamore, and it was impossible to miss. It was the biggest tree in the whole forest. One of the first rules of the camp was that we weren't allowed to climb it, since falling from such a great height was guaranteed death. Also, since the tree was so old, damaging it in any way would mean a great loss for the forest biome. Yes, you were told to avoid it for those reasons, Mr. Daniel said, after repeating those same warnings. But there is another reason. Sir, interrupted one of the junior counselors. She was a young woman named Mia, and even in the moonlight, we could tell that she was beautiful. Her long, blonde hair glowing like gold as she stepped closer to the fire. Are you sure they're old enough to hear this? She asked. Mr. Daniel swung around, stabbing a finger at her in what we would later understand to be just an act, a play to raise the tension, something they'd planned together in advance. One of the many secret agreements between the two of them we would eventually learn. What would you have me do? Mr. Daniels said to Mia, Keep them in the dark. They deserve to know the truth. His face glowed red as he turned back to us again, his voice now barely a whisper. That tree, you must understand, is special. Arborists will tell you the tree is hundreds and hundreds of years old, older than the state of Ohio even. But those who have lived in the forest know the truth. The sycamore is no older than your grandparents. We didn't understand. And we had all read in the camp brochure that the tree likely predated the statehood of Ohio by at least 300 years. Why would they print a lie in their own brochure? It is normally impossible to know the exact age of a living tree. But in this case, we have it on record. Mr. Daniels continued... The tree was planted in 1944, during the height of World War II. Back then, there was no camp here, only one small cabin by the lake, where a young woman lived alone. 
Her husband was off fighting in Europe. But soon, the woman would not be alone, for she was expecting to give birth to a baby. She wrote letters to her husband about how happy she would be when he returned, when they could raise their child together on the shore of the lake. But just when the baby was close to arriving, her husband's letters stopped showing up in the mailbox. She kept writing to him, but she received no response. It was only later that a Western Union telegram had arrived, informing her that her husband had been killed in action. Mr. Daniels took a moment to reach down at his feet, where he had set a canteen of water. Slowly, he unscrewed the cap of the canteen and took a long swig, wiping his mouth as he screwed the cap back on and set the canteen down again at his feet. The young woman, now a widow, was devastated, he said. But she did not have time to dwell on her despair. The same day the telegram had arrived, she went into sudden labor. And all by herself, she gave birth to a baby boy right on the wooden floorboards of the cabin. It should have been a joyous moment for her. But the young widow could barely look at the child without seeing her husband's face staring back at her. She found everything about the baby boy filled her with rage. His cries in the night, his little curled fingers, his bright blue eyes, his hungry mouth on her breast as she nursed him, always hungry for more, more, more. We were elementary school kids, so the mention of breasts should have had us giggling, but the cold tone of Mr. Daniel's voice kept us all silent. One night, Mr. Daniel said, while the baby was sleeping, the young woman lay awake on her cot listening to these sounds of the forest. She had heard these same sounds each night for years, the rustling of branches, the sighing of leaves in the wind. But tonight, for the first time, it was as if she could decode a language that she had never understood before. She heard the trees communicating. She heard them whispering to her, and to her alone. And the trees told her the same thing over and over again. The trees said there was a way to bring her husband back. And we all remember the same feeling when Mr. Daniels got to this point in the story. Like a bag of ice had been poured down the back of our shirts, or like ants were crawling up on our ankles. The trees told the young widow that life could be restored but she would have to make an offering, life for life. A tree cannot grow without a seed, after all. And the young widow knew what the trees were telling her. Immediately, she rose from her bed. In her nightgown, she stepped across the open room of the cabin to the cupboard, where she had kept her gardening gloves. She slid them on both hands. And then she put on her work boots by the door, pulling the laces tight. Next, she lifted a small gardening shovel off its hook on the wall and tucked it under her arm. Just before leaving the cabin, she went to the crib and lifted her sleeping baby in her arms. Mr. Daniels tilted his head up at the starry night sky, the vast expanse of the constellations bearing down on us. It was a warm and clear night, he whispered. A night much like tonight. 
and we waited as he gazed upward, awash in the sounds of the burning logs, the crickets in the forest, the wind passing through the trees. The young widow, he said, lowering his eyes. She stepped out into the dark and carried her baby out to the clearing. She laid the baby boy down in a soft padding of grass by the tree line, making sure the baby was wrapped warmly in his blanket. And then she stepped back into the opening, pulled out her shovel, and began digging. She dug and dug. Soon, she had dug a hole big enough to plant a young tree. She set the shovel aside. She needed a rest for a moment, so she sat down on the ground looking out at the lake. The moon floated on the surface of the water, the same moon she and her husband had gazed upon when they were still together, when the entire forest seemed to have been placed here just for them alone. Eventually, she stood up, and she went over to her baby boy. She lifted him up and set him down gently in the hole. She filled the hole with dirt until the sound of the baby boy's shrieks fell silent. None of us moved. We barely breathed. The flames of the fire were dying out, the embers pulsing. The next morning, when the young widow woke up, she tidied up the cabin, put on her prettiest dress and combed her hair, waiting for her husband to appear again through the trees. But when she went outside, she could not find him. The only change in the scenery was a small sycamore tree that had sprouted from the spot where she had planted the seed. By the day's end, the tree had grown up to her waist. By the week's end, the tree had sprouted branches that unfurled high above her head. The young widow realized that she had been tricked. She screamed. She kicked at the sycamore tree, though its trunks held firm against her foot no matter how hard she had attacked it. She yelled up at the other trees of the forest. She said that they had lied to her. But the trees had not lied. They had promised that she would have a life for life. And so she did. But they had not promised what form that life would take. As he had been talking, Mr. Daniels had picked up a stick off the ground and now used it to poke at the fire, collapsing the last remaining logs and suffocating the flames until we were sitting in near total darkness. After years living beside the sycamore tree, he said, the widow could not bear the sight of it any longer. One night, she grabbed a thick rope and climbed up the tree's branches, higher and higher. She tied one end of the rope to a sturdy branch. The other end, she fastened into a noose and slipped it over her head, tightening it around her neck. And then she jumped off her neck snapping as her body swung, her dead eyes gazing out the lake where the moon shone. Hikers passing through the area found her decomposed corpse picked apart by birds a few weeks later. Since the widow had no next of kin, the land was taken over by the state. And a few decades later, when the story of the young widow was all but forgotten, the land became this very camp. But there are still those who remember. There are still those who know to stay away from the sycamore.
We all breathed a shallow breath in the dark as Mr. Daniels stood up from his stomp, his body looming over us. So, he said, with that I tell you, welcome to Camp Sycamore. Now it's time for bed. Counselors, please take the campers to their cabins. We are older now, all adults, so of course we understand the story Mr. Daniels told us that night could not have been possibly true. It was a story like most other campfire stories, meant to scare and disturb those who heard it. And even now, we would say there is nothing inherently wrong with that. And to get a good scare in the woods is a rite of passage for most kids. Even if the story Mr. Daniels told us that night was, in retrospect, entirely inappropriate for elementary school kids. But with that being said, when we heard this story as kids, we believed it. Believed it in our bones. Our faith was only reinforced by the fact that Mr. Daniels seemed to know everything about the forest. On hikes, he could identify every bird by its song, every plant by its leaves and roots, every animal by the faintest of prints and dirt. As we tracked through the woods, listening to him rhapsodize about the wondrous world around us, we felt hypnotized. Stop for a moment, he said one afternoon, crouching down over the dirt. His eyes wandered around us, seeing things that we could not. You see these dips here in the dirt, and these small trees tilting over the path. We nodded, even though we still had trouble seeing what he meant. Well, these are the sure signs of a sinkhole. He stood then, inching forward just a bit, and gave the ground in front of us a good stop. Amazingly, the earth yielded beneath his foot like a popped bubble, and the ground deflated a few feet down, forming a small hole. We were stunned. A pocket of air, the result of a soft sediment, he explained. These sinkholes are not quite large enough to cause serious harm, but they could lead to a sprained ankle. Now let's keep going, and be careful where you step. If Mr. Daniels could predict when the earth would open up, we thought he was as close to a prophet as we would ever meet. Camp Sycamore had been around since the 1950s, but it wasn't until Mr. Daniels took over that the camp truly became itself. After years as a professor of biology at Ohio State, Mr. Daniels took a pay cut to become the camp's director in the early 1980s. Having grown tired of the inner office politics of academia, and the stuffiness of the classroom. Now, the camp was his classroom, and because of his efforts, Camp Sycamore had earned the kind of acclaim usually reserved for top-tier prep academies. There were wait lists to be accepted as a camper. Our parents had all filled out forms years ago to ensure that we earned spots that summer. Dozens of former campers, including all these senior counselors, had gone on to be accepted to MIT, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, and other world-renowned universities. The junior counselors who were still in high school excelled in AP and international baccalaureate courses. We liked all the counselors, but by far our favorite was Mia. Mia. 
the blonde-haired girl who had spoken up during the first night's campfire story. Mia was a junior counselor, about to start her sophomore year in high school. She had never been a camper before, but had earned her spot as a counselor by winning first prize in the 1997 Ohio State Science Day last winter. Mr. Daniels had been a judge in the contest and made a point of offering her the position. Her winning project had been the restoration of the fading colors of a red, orange, and yellow poison dart frog by replicating and coating the frog in a dye found in its natural habitat in the wilds of Costa Rica. We didn't understand anything about it, but when we saw her at the campfire that first night, she seemed like a creature from another world herself. In the daylight, she was just as beautiful, her smile warm and friendly, her blonde hair tied back in a scrunchie as she went about her work in the camps at Greenhouse. Mia had taken over as our informal plant biology instructor. We had lessons with her in the morning three days a week. She always wore baggy clothes like sweatpants and hoodies, even on hot days, which only added to her allure. Other girls in music videos needed to wear sparkly tight outfits and bikinis. Not Mia. She would have been stunning in a burlap bag. We started the summer with her trying to grow zucchini. She had us all bent over the plant beds in a row as we awkwardly placed these seeds into the soil. Carefully now, Mia said. You want to tuck the seed into its bed and then cover it gently but firmly with the soil. She paced on the line of us in the greenhouse, reviewing our work. Then we all secretly wished she would come up behind and place her hand on ours, guiding them as she layered soil over the seed, patting the soil down. And then press... Press, press the soil down with your hands, she said, gently but firmly, to remove any air pockets and keep the seed nice and cozy and snug. Okay, boys? We nodded and worked hard not to make mistakes, until all of our seeds were nice and cozy and snug in the tight soil, just like she had taught us. All that life from a tiny little seed, she said at the end of class. It's like magic, isn't it? She seemed so old and wise to us, but of course, we realized now she was just a girl, barely 16 years old. Far too young for the pain she endured that summer. A month after we had arrived at camp, Mia got sick. We were coming back from the lake when we saw her bent over outside the greenhouse, vomiting in the grass. Our lesson with her in the greenhouse was canceled that day. And by the end of the week, Mr. Daniels and Mia moved into the guest wing of his own private residence inside the lodge. He said Mia would be more comfortable with a real bed and shower and privacy, as opposed to sleeping on a bunk bed inside a cabin. Oh, don't you worry. She'll be all hunky-dory, he said that night in the dining hall as he loaded his paper plate with chicken and potatoes. But I will say... The fact you boys are so concerned is a testament to how upstanding you all are. Caring for your fellow human being just as caring for nature is the true test of character. 
when he walked off, we all nodded at each other, convinced that we had done our job. No one saw Mia for days. Mr. Daniels said she was in quarantine with a bad bug. She needed a rest, he said, so it was best not to bother her. It wasn't until more than a week later, when we snuck out in the middle of the night, that we saw her again. Sneaking out at night was easy for those in our all-boy cabin. We had realized that our senior counselor was such a heavy sleeper that we could do just about anything. At first, we whispered in the dark and he didn't wake up. Some of us munched on sunflower seeds or crinkled the wrappers of contraband candy bars. And then we talked in normal voices. Still, he kept on snoring, occasionally rolling over like a bear, his mattress springs squeaking under his weight. After a week, we realized we could sneak out and run around the cabin, amazed and a little afraid at what we could get away with. One night, we had decided to prank the girls in the neighboring cabin. We wanted to put shampoo in their shoes so when they stepped into them the next morning, their toes would squish into the soapy goob. But as we snuck up the hill in the moonlight and passed the lodge, we heard a door creak open and we all scrambled into these shadows to hide. Out into the night air stepped Mia, her body steaming in the fog. We barely recognized her at first. She wasn't wearing her normal baggy pants and hoodie. She was almost naked, stepping barefoot over the dirt in nothing but underwear and a tight tank top. When she turned, we saw her swollen belly, she began walking down the hill toward the lake. We felt pulled toward her. We followed behind, trying not to be seen. It was easy because she seemed not to see anything around her. She walked free and alone. She floated, her arms swinging as she reached the sycamore tree by the shore of the lake. There, beneath its branches, she slid off her tank top. She stepped out of her underwear, and now she was fully nude, glowing in the dark. She undid the scrunchie from her hair, letting it fall loose and free, and we watched as she waded into the water. She moved like a light creature, floating on her back in the moonlight, her rounded belly slick and glistening. We watched her splash around sometimes disappearing under the water for so long that we wanted to shout out at her. But always, she would resurface, slicking her golden hair back. After what felt like hours, she finally swam back to the shore and walked out. The most amazing sight any of us had ever seen. As we watched her wringing out the water from her hair, we knew we were committing some terrible sin some intrusion of her privacy that could not be forgiven, but none of us could look away. In the following decades, most of the boys who were at that camp that summer would go on to spend years in therapy or counseling of some kind. A good number of us developed drug and alcohol dependencies. Others turned to the church, hoping they could be cleansed of their guilt through sheer devotion. Some of us just disappeared. 
there is a private Facebook group someone started. Most of us joined it, all for different reasons. The page will sit unused for months, years, until someone makes a new post, usually late at night, and the post is almost always the same. How could we not have known? How could we have done what we did? If there are any responses at all, usually they will repeat the same old excuse. We were just kids. But none of us believe that answers anything. After we saw Mia swimming in the lake that night, none of us talked about it during the day when others were around. We went on hikes with Mr. Daniels, watching out for sudden sinkholes on the path. We worked with the other counselors in the greenhouse. We swam in the lake and tried having fun. As if the warm, metallic waters hadn't been transformed into a sacred space. But at night, when our counselor snored on his mattress, a few of us decided that it was important to go check on her. We all knew the real reason was because we all wanted to see her again. Every night, Mia swam through our dreams, and we would have given anything to see her in real life. Days went by and there was no sign of Mia. Boys came back and reported what they had seen, which was nothing. The same sleeping cabins, the same wind in the trees, the same shadow of the giant sycamore tree over the empty lake. We did spot Mr. Daniels though. One night, he stepped out of the lodge and just stood there in the dark taking deep breaths as he looked out at the lake at the bottom of the hill. Fireflies blinked around him, and he swatted at them and said, Screw off, get away, screw off, Jesus Christ. We crouched back in the darkness, until we heard the slam of the door as Mr. Daniels went back inside. It was less than a week later, the middle of the night, when some of the boys in our cabin shook us awake. Baby, baby. Emerging from our dreams, it took us a few seconds before we understood what they were saying. Baby, we saw a baby, they whispered. Mr. Daniels with a baby. The air outside that night was the same temperature as our bodies and it felt like we were moving through the water as we ran out of the cabin. Some of the boys had followed Mr. Daniels as he had left the lodge. The ones who had ran to the cabin to wake us up, then led us down the hill toward the lake, where a few others were supposed to be waiting to show us the way. The sycamore tree gleamed in the fog over the shore. When we ran toward it, we were so sure it would play a role in whatever came next. And that's something almost all of us still struggle with to this day. All these years later, we wanted there to be meaning in what had happened. For it to signify something, anything. We couldn't admit to ourselves that the tree and everything else, it had meant nothing. That it was just a campfire story. So we ran toward the sycamore, certain in a way only kids can be, 
until we heard someone call to us from behind in a whispered shout. Hey, guys. We stopped, turned. The guys who had followed Mr. Daniels were waiting at the edge of the woods back up at the hill, standing by the entrance to a path that led away from the lake. It's this way. Come on, they said. What happened next might as well have been a dream. The path winding through the woods, the pockets of moonlight through the tree branches, the small sinkholes that appeared every now and then, which we hopped over so effortlessly. We found the others waiting belly down at the edge of a small cliff, overlooking a clearing down below. They looked like cowboys ready to engage in a firefight over a canyon. Crawling up to them, we heard Mr. Daniels before we saw him. He was down in the clearing. We heard him scraping and digging at the ground with a stick. As we peeked over the edge, we saw him shoving the dirt aside with his hands. We didn't see the baby at first. The others had to point it out for us. It was so small. A tiny bundle on the ground by a tree a few yards behind Mr. Daniels. The baby was wrapped in a blanket. We all remember the color. Baby blue. Moonlit. Not more than a minute after us, new arrivals got there. Mr. Daniels stood and looked down at the hole he had dug. We had wondered what he was doing, why he was standing so still. After what felt like forever, his shoulders seemed to droop. And then he turned and walked over to the baby. Shh, we heard him say, his voice floating up to us as he crouched down, lifting the baby in his arms. Mia showed up three days later in the dining hall at breakfast. Everyone was coming up to her and telling her how glad they were that she was better. She looked a little frazzled and exhausted, her eyes more baggy than before. But she managed to smile and thank everyone for the kind words. When we stood in line behind her for the breakfast buffet, she turned around and smiled at us. It sure is good to see you boys again. She grabbed her plate from the bin, her fork and knife, her spoon. Even now, no, even more than ever, she was beautiful to us. We watched her scoop eggs from the metal buffet tray onto her plate, as if we were witnessing the sun parting through the clouds after a rainstorm. I hope you haven't forgotten everything I've taught you now, have you? She smiled again. She picked up a pepper shaker and shook out a little over her eggs. It'll be nice to be back in the greenhouse again, huh? There was so much we wanted to tell her, and we were about to respond when Mr. Daniels appeared from behind us. Well, look who's back in fine spirits, he said, beaming. We all missed you, Mia, didn't we, boys? Mia closed her mouth her eyes squinting a little. But just as quickly, the expression vanished from her face and she smiled again. She nodded down at us but didn't say anything 
as she drifted off toward a table in the corner. All that breakfast, we glanced back over our shoulders, watching her deposit eggs into her mouth and then chew slowly, slowly, her eyes looking off at nothing. Over the next few days, Mr. Daniels followed Mia around everywhere. In the greenhouse, Mia went through her normal lessons about planting seeds, while Mr. Daniels stood in the corner. Patted down gently but firmly, she said, pressing her palm down over a pot of soil. Remember, we want the seed nice and cozy and snug, okay? Before the lesson was over, Mia said she needed to take a break, and Mr. Daniels suggested she go and lie down. She nodded as she slid off her gardening gloves, and we watched as he escorted her out of the greenhouse. The rest of the night, whenever Mia was out and around the camp, she mostly just walked from place to place, nodding and smiling at people, Mr. Daniels close behind. There was something different about her though. When she looked at us, she seemed to be looking right through us. Near the end, just before everything fell apart, some of us spotted Mia and Mr. Daniels talking outside of the greenhouse. They were whispering but yelling, the kind of yelling where both were trying to keep their voices down. I told you, Mr. Daniels said. You haven't told me anything. Yes, I, Mia, yes, I have. And I'll say it again and again and again. Everything's fine. She's fine. I'm fine. You're fine. Where then? Mia was close to Mr. Daniels, shout whispering in his face. Just tell me where. In a safe place. In a program. She's... Oh, bullshit. Don't give me that. A program. What does that even mean? You don't think I have those kind of connections? For Christ's sake, Mia. I run a summer camp. My whole job is dealing with kids. Hmm. What? You certainly do deal with kids. I'll give you that. Hey. No. You listen to me. I want proof. I want to know she's fine. You said so. Okay, wait, okay. So your job is dealing with this stuff. Great. That means you have the proper paperwork. So, give me that, Paul. Give me some freaking proof. Otherwise, I'm leaving. Paul. We had never heard any of the counselors or camp staff refer to Mr. Daniels by his first name. That night, Mia wasn't at dinner in the dining hall. By the next day, we had heard that she had been sent home. She still needed to recover, Mr. Daniels said, and she would be much more comfortable at home. But we would see her soon enough, not to worry. She'll be back before you know it, he said, grinning. A week later, four police cars showed up and took Mr. Daniels away in handcuffs. To this day, None of us can remember who told the police about the baby. All we know is that the police officers had gathered all of the campers and counselors together in the spot by the fire pit. And then a bearded man with glasses 
who looked like a guidance counselor, stepped up and announced that camp was ending early. One of us, we still can't remember who, said as we were shuffling into the buses. This is because of the baby, isn't it? The bearded man and the two police officers beside the bus all stopped, as if someone had just fired a gun into the air. Could you, said the bearded man. I'm sorry, but could you please repeat that? Our parents couldn't hide the news from us, although they tried their best. They made sure to keep the nightly news turned off for the next few weeks. But the story of a beloved middle-aged camp director doing what he did to his counselor and then doing what he did to the baby on campgrounds was sensational enough to make national headlines for more than a month. We only got to see Mia one last time after she had left camp. It was at the courthouse during the trial. Some of us had been called to testify, despite our parents' misgivings. We were what the prosecution called vital witnesses. All during the trial, Mia sat in a black dress in the courtroom. On the trial's second day, we were outside in the courthouse parking lot. A few of us were standing around in our little suits, while our parents murmured to one another. That's when the passenger side door of a passing car was flung open, and out of the moving car jumped Mia, still wearing her black courtroom dress. She fell on her knees over the pavement as the car screeched to a halt and then she got up, scrambling to her feet. None of our parents saw her run towards us. They only noticed when she had started screaming. Look at me, boys, look. How could you? How could you? They turned just as Mia pushed past them and bent over us, screaming in our faces. You could have done something. You could have stopped him. One of our parents tried ushering her back, but she kept shouting, her face swollen as she choked through sobs. You saw it. You saw what he did. You could have saved her. It all happened so fast. Eventually, someone pulled Mia away. She was put back in the car and driven off, and we never saw her again. On the ride home from the courthouse, all of our parents did a version of the same thing. Hey, pal, none of this is your fault. Okay, champ. Hey, maybe we should stop for some McDonald's on the way home. Or some ice cream, how does that sound? But they were wrong. Only Mia knew. Only she saw us for who we were. In the decades that followed, many of us have had children of our own. We have felt our babies curl their hands around our fingers, their soft bodies cradled in our laps. But we can still hear Mia screaming at us. When we wake up at night hearing it, it was as if she had known the truth all along. As if she had known we had been lying. We hadn't told the police everything. Even in court, we didn't tell them about what had happened after Mr. Daniels had buried the baby that night in the woods. We didn't tell them when Mr. Daniels ran out of the woods back to the lodge. All of us boys scrambled down the slope and stood over the spot where he had dug the hole. We didn't tell them that a pocket of air must have been right below us in the dirt, 
another result of soft sediment on the campground pass. Because the moment all of our weight circled around the hole, the ground shifted. At first, we thought it was the sprouting of a magical tree. We had felt it under our feet. Dirt sunk deeper all at once, as if a trap door had opened ten feet below us. But as the dirt fell deeper, instead of a tree sprouting out, only a small pale hand appeared out of the ground, clenching and unclenching, grasping at the cool night air. Some of us still try to believe that clenching hand was just the result of the dirt moving, like a tree limb bobbing in the wind. But none of us disagree about what happened next. Together, we got down on our hands and knees and pushed more dirt into the hole, covering the little hand again until the ground was level. And then we pressed our palms over the dirt. We pressed gently but firmly to remove any air pockets so the seed would be nice and cozy and snug, just how Mia had taught us. I hope you all enjoyed today's stories, and I appreciate you listening. Perhaps next time, you could listen in with a little help from our sponsor, Raycon. Right now, Creepscast listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order, at buyraycon.com slash mrcreeps. Hope you folks all have a great day or night, wherever you may be in the world. And as always, stay creepy.